Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I think all of us um, in this world are familiar with power struggles. Power struggles are commonplace in this fallen, broken world. We see power struggles taking place on a global level, on a political level, level. but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we actually see them taking place on a regular basis on an individual level in our own lives. So while we see struggles for power taking place on a global scale, oftentimes we see struggles for power taking place in our own homes, in our own relationships. But I would suggest to you this morning that if you're a follower of Christ, one of the greatest power struggles you have in the Christian life is not so much a struggle to get power, but a struggle to know and to use the power that's already been given to you. We constantly have a struggle within our lives to stay connected to the power source and to see that power, the power of the living God, the power of the Holy Spirit surging in and through us to produce radical change and transformation. God has promised to take his children He has given us the gift of the Spirit of God, and it is his desire, and I hope and pray it is your desire this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to be radically, regularly changed and transformed by the very power of the Holy Spirit. That is Paul's heart for the church in Ephesus, for the believers that he's penned this letter to almost 2,000 years ago. He prays for them in this section of scripture and the dominating theme of his prayer is that they would come to know God as we saw last week, to know him in a a deeper, more intimate, more profound way, a way that truly begins to radically change them from the inside out. It is Paul's heart for them there and it is God's heart for us now. As Paul writes, we'll pick up at verse 19 just to gather the context and a bit of momentum into the passage this morning. He writes with this in mind that we are called to know and to access this magnificent power of God that is toward us, those who believe. He says in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is after, by the power of the Holy Spirit, radical life change in the lives of those who have come into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so for us this morning, we need to see that this is exactly what the Spirit of God is aiming at in our lives. He is aiming at radical change, and we need to understand this as we unpack Paul's writings to the Ephesians here, that radical change is possible when I first understand the unrivaled display of God's power. There has to be a a very initial but growing understanding of the unrivaled display of God's power. Now remember, as we saw last week in verse 19, what Paul does is so strategic and intentional In verse 19, he literally gathers up every Greek word he can to express this concept of power, and he just packs them into one sentence to say that God's power is like nothing else this universe has ever seen or known or experienced. It is immeasurable in its greatness. And it's fascinating now that as Paul wants to drive this home and he wants us to understand in increasing ways the magnitude of this power, it's fascinating the illustration or the greatest display of power that he chooses. Now, I think many of us, if we were to say, well, how could we highlight the greatest display of God's power? What would I choose to put on display God's power? What's the supreme act? A lot of us might be inclined to say, why doesn't Paul choose the creation account? 
Right? Genesis 1, where God speaks from nothing and creates everything by the power of his word. That would be a phenomenal place to demonstrate the power of God. Or maybe even to start going through the Old Testament and the New Testament and picking out certain miracles, like the parting of the sea, or the calming of the sea, or the opening the eyes of blind people, or the healing of lepers. But Paul wants wants us to know, and the Spirit of God wants us to know, that the greatest display of power that anybody could ever look to is right here. It is the resurrection and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater display of power in all the universe than this right here. Paul appeals to this. You say, why? Why is that the greatest display of power? Here's why. Because the greatest power apart from God is death. The greatest power in the universe is death. And it's interesting, when we kind of measure what makes something powerful, a lot of times, in fact, most often, one of the things that we turn to is to recognize the kind of destruction and damage something can cause by the very nature of its power. See, what makes something most powerful is that it has the power to end life. When you think of natural instances of power, like storms, hurricanes, and earthquakes, when you think about man-made powers, superpowers of nations, and the kind of weapons of mass destruction that they possess, it is the damage and the death toll that causes them to be recognized as the power that they truly are. You see, power is having the ability to do what you want. On a strictly human level, power is having the ability to do what you want, and death is the ultimate limiter to that power. Death is the greatest power that we face apart from God, but one of the things Paul wants to highlight is that God's power is immeasurable. So the greatest power we face is nothing compared to the power of God, and the only way he could show that or display that was by defeating the greatest power man has ever faced. The same power that conquered death can now give life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. The same power Paul is wanting to communicate that opened the grave can open the heart of lost and sinful human beings. The same power that destroys humanity is now defeated by the greater power of the cross of Jesus Christ and specifically in his resurrection and exaltation. But here's the issue that we face. You see, we can look at this power and all of us can even pay lip service to this and say, yeah, I understand that the resurrection demonstrates God's great power over death, but here's where the rubber meets the road. We have to stay connected to this power. Every one of us has to stay connected to this power if we're in Jesus Christ. There is a, a, a small town in Texas, and just before the Second World War, there was a massive, tragic fire that claimed the lives of 263 individuals. It was devastation that wrecked this entire town. There wasn't a family in this town that wasn't touched by what had happened, and as a result of that, just before the war, as they were rebuilding this school, they actually installed one of the most state-of-the-art Sprinkling, sprinkler systems, the world had never seen something so complex and something so magnificent in terms of, of this kind of thing. And in fact, one of the things they did was they actually were setting up tours. People were coming from all over the place to get a glimpse of what this looked like and they were so fascinated by the technology that they were using. After the war had ended, and the economy began to flourish again, the school was booming and they needed to expand the school and so they began to build a a new wing on the school and as they were in the process of, of looking at the sprinkler system, somebody realized that this magnificent sprinkler system that had been installed through this entire structure had forgotten to be connected to the power source. It was essentially worthless, and though they had people coming in to tour from all over the place, it was essentially useless, and I think that this serves as a really powerful illustration of some of our lives today. Some of us who claim to know and love Jesus Christ, we live our lives by doing anything and everything we can, but we fail to see any results. We strive to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to do what we believe God is calling us to do, to obey, and we seem to be hitting the wall time after time. 
It's possible this morning that the reason for the lack of results and fruitfulness in your spiritual life is because you're not actually connected to the power source or you haven't remained connected to the power source. And that's incredibly important because for a Christian to not be connected to the power source, well, that, that is, that's to miss the entire point. That's like having a car without an engine or like having coffee without caffeine. I mean, it's pointless. It doesn't even taste as good. But a Christian with the power of the Spirit of God coursing through their being is life-changing, and that is the purpose of God. That's why he has given to you the Spirit of God. It's a power, by the way, as we've seen in Ephesians 1 already, that will eventually change the entire world. This power that will set all things right in the universe is now currently working to set things right within you. The resurrection involved far more than the bringing to life of a dead corpse. It marked the inauguration of a new era in the history of God's saving interventions. It is the climax of God's promised covenant to Abraham. It is the beginning, as the New Testament tells us, of a new creation. It is evidence that God is renewing his whole creation and that he's powerful enough to do so. And if the tomb, listen, is still sealed right now to this day, so is our fate. But if the tomb is empty, then the world is full of hope. And by the way, the tomb is empty. Hallelujah. But Paul doesn't stop there. When he displays the unrivaled power of God, he looks not only to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, notice what he tags on there. He wants us to see it displayed in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. You say, why is that? Well, biblically speaking, theologically speaking, those two things when it comes to Jesus Christ have to go hand in hand. Here's why. Because Jesus wasn't the only person who was raised back to life in the scriptures, was he? You can look at some accounts of people who were raised back to life, like Lazarus, for example. Paul raised people to life. But here's one of the common realities of every other person who was raised to life in the scriptures. Every one of those individuals eventually died again, right? But not Jesus. Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, demonstrating his defeat over sin and death. And to put the seal upon that, he is resurrected, listen, never to die again. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. It's such a simple phrase. I want you to look at it with me in verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Simple phrase, but it is packed with so much significance. In fact, we know this here that Paul is actually referring to, he's citing Psalm 110. If you've got your Bibles, flip back to Psalm 110. Psalms is kind of right in the middle of your Bible if you're trying to get yourself situated. Psalm 110 is what Paul is leaning into to give us a greater understanding of the significance of the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. By the way, Psalm 110, the passage that he quotes here, is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. The authors of the New Testament quote this passage here more than any other passage from the Old Testament. It's therefore, listen, of immense importance to us. Here's one of the things that we read. Psalm 110, look at verse one. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There it is, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You see, hundreds of years before Christ, this psalm was written. You can translate it more like this. The Father says to the Messiah, or the Son, sit at my right hand. In other words, what he's communicating is this, reign on my behalf. You share equally in my power and in my authority. And the idea there of making your enemies your footstool, it implies, listen, that the greatest enemy of mankind will ultimately be defeated by the Messiah. Sin and Satan the death that rules and reigns, the enemies of God will be brought low and underneath the feet of this great Messiah who sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. It's fascinating when you look at Psalm 110 here, you can look down, it continues to unfold some aspects of this Messiah. I just wanna draw your attention to one thing that I think is just so helpful. Notice verse four. 
It says about this Messiah that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking of the Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I've I've heard of Melchizedek and I don't quite understand why he's significant. He's brought up a couple times in the scriptures. He's seen first in the Old Testament. He's referred to in the book of Hebrews. What is so significant about Melchizedek? Well, here's what's so significant and why it matters that this Messiah falls in this line after the order of Melchizedek because in the Old Testament, he's this mysterious figure, but he, he accomplishes two things. He holds two offices. You see, he's a priest, but he's also a king. And this is unparalleled in Scripture. This is so rare. It's so unheard of. But God, by His Spirit and through the pen of Paul, wants to make it clear in one sense here that, listen, this Messiah who would come, He must be both a priest and a king. There's going to be a Messiah who is a priest. A priest is one who reconciles people to God. And there's going to be a Messiah who is also at the same time a king. A king is one who rules on behalf of God with his delegated authority. There's going to be one who does both of these things. You see, Jesus is our priest king. He is fulfilling these Old Testament promises. To sit at the right hand in the Old Testament context was to sit in the position of authority and special honor. Sitting, by the way, represents that this priestly work was finished. You see, in the Old Testament context, the priest's job was never done when it came to sacrificing animals. This whole sacrificial system that was designed by God to remind his people that the consequences of sin was death. And to encourage and instill hope in their people that something had to die in their place, that their sin deserved death, but an animal could temporarily take their place. You see, a priest would stand year after year, standing, killing animal after animal, shedding their blood, all of this pointing towards a future day. And the book of Hebrews picks up on this theme. A future day when God would send his Messiah This priest king would also become the perfect sacrifice. As Hebrews 10, 12 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, mission completed. He paid the full penalty for sin. No longer would any animal have to pay a penalty that it could never fully pay. He defeated death in the moment of the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation. He conquered the enemy. But this idea of Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father does not mean that he's not working right now. That is a a misconception that some people have. You see, he didn't sit down in a lazy boy. He sat down on a throne. He's ruling right now. At this moment, he rules on behalf of God. And by the way, he sent to us the Holy Spirit to continue and apply the work that he had begun. I just want to encourage you with one other scripture that reminds us of the work that Jesus is doing right now. Not only has he accomplished the work on the cross, but right now, listen to this. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God. Listen, you say, what is he doing at the right hand of God? Listen to this. Who indeed is interceding for us. Right now, the work of Jesus is to sit at the right hand of the Father and constantly, listen, as the accuser, the great accuser, the great enemy of your souls, brings accusation after accusation against you to the throne of God. As your sin continues to accumulate in this life and it is brought forth as a charge against you, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father of his throne and he says, nope, I paid for that one. Nope, that's my child. Nope, that one's covered by my blood. It is a constant encouragement to our heart to know the work of our Savior on our behalf. And he's not done with this work until the end when he hands the kingdom over to his Father. This is so, so profound for the way we live our lives. Understanding this is instrumental. Murray Harris, New Testament scholar, says this. He says, the resurrection proclaims that he lives and that forever. The exaltation proclaims that he reigns and that forever forever. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in speaking of this verse and what took place and what is being accomplished through the resurrection and exaltation, he he speaks of 
our victory in the Christian life, and he looks specifically at the three common or great adversaries that every person faces, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are our great adversaries. The world constantly bombards us with its values. It constantly bombards us with the value system that is opposed to God and obedience to him. We get this constantly from television. We get it from newspapers. We get it in movies. We get it over the internet. The competitive world in which we earn our livings and from our casual conversations with those who live for themselves and not for the glory of God. And he asked this question, how are we to be victorious over this great enemy of worldliness that creeps in so quickly, if we're honest? It creeps in so quickly in our lives. It gets such a stranglehold on our lives. And here's what he says very clearly and very succinctly. It is by the power of God displayed in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ from the dead. This power, he says, is able to transform us by the renewing of our minds, as Romans 12, 2 says. It is what makes us a new creation. Our second great adversary is the flesh. And biblically speaking, that's that part of us that is fallen. It is broken by sin, and it is inclined towards sin. It's all of our natural disposition. Our flesh pulls us away from honoring God and desiring him and towards our own sinful, selfish desires. Our flesh is a formidable opponent. It is a great enemy. It constantly seeks to have victory in our lives. It draws us into inactivity when we should be drawing near to God, reading the Bible, praying, and, and performing good works. It locks us into sinful patterns of behavior when we should be living a Christian life for his glory. How can we triumph over these strong forces? It is only by the power of God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. You see, here's why this is so important, and here's why Paul wants to get this picture in your mind, because every day, every one of us faces a bombardment of attacks, both internally and externally. There's so much sin in our lives, there's so much temptation, we face circumstances and situations that seem to control us. But one of the things that Paul wants to remind us of is that if God can conquer our greatest enemy and the greatest power the world has ever seen, there is no sin, there is no situation, and there is no stronghold that he cannot conquer in your life. Do you see how important that is? He's already conquered the greatest foe you face. So if you have his power in you, there is nothing in your life that cannot be conquered by him. And for some of you, that's incredibly good news because you have been living this life, this Christian life, in such defeat. You've been tapping into the wrong power sources. You haven't been drawing near to God, and so you therefore haven't been experiencing his power working in and through you. But there's hope for this morning. Some of you are so defeated and so discouraged, and you think there's no way you're going to change. There's no way the situation's going to get better. There's no way I'm going to grow more and more into the godly, mature follower of Christ that he desires me to be. There's no way I'm going to be able to have the courage to share my faith with those I love and I long to see come to faith in him. The good news is, is this, that his power is in you. There is nothing he cannot do in you and through you and for you. What hope there is for those who are in Christ. Radical change is possible when I understand the unrivaled display of God's power. Whenever you're facing temptation, whenever you're in the midst of a difficult circumstance and you're wondering if there's any way through, listen to me, go right back to the cross. Go back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go back to his exaltation and you see that our Lord and Savior has risen from the grave. He has conquered the greatest enemy and he is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And let that fill your heart with hope as you press on to the challenges of this life. Secondly, if you want to see radical change in your life, celebrate the unrivaled dominance of God's power. We need to learn to celebrate the unrivaled dominance of God's power to understand the victory, the, the true nature of this victory and the magnitude of this victory. In verse 21, 
He picks up, Paul does, on this theme of the ruling of Christ, and he says this, that here Christ is ruling at the right hand of the Father, and he's seated at the heavenly places. Listen to this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see what Paul is doing? Paul is stacking every opposing power, both earthly and heavenly right now, against Jesus Christ, and he is saying that they are nothing compared to him. Their power is so minuscule compared to the power of Jesus Christ. Being enthroned above all reminds us that there is not an acre or an inch of this universe that he does not rule over. His rule is far above. It greatly exceeds any kind of rule or authority in this age and in the age to come. I want you to notice the words that Paul chooses to use here He says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You say, well, what is Paul talking about? Well, for sure he's talking about, at a human level, kings and uh, government authorities and those who would exercise power from a human perspective. But I want you to understand that at a much greater level, Paul is actually using these words, they're code words, for the spiritual forces of evil that exist in this world. In other words, what Paul is saying is, The rulership of Jesus Christ is above the rulership of all of the demons, all of the fallen angels, and over the rulership of Satan himself. Satan is the third great enemy of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And one of the things we need to see is throughout this entire book, Paul highlights the cosmic supernatural battle that is being waged all around us. Some of us are inclined to think that, you know, there are only a a select few passages that deal with spiritual warfare in the Bible, and and maybe the first passage that comes to your mind is Ephesians chapter 6, and it is a phenomenal passage about spiritual warfare, the armor of God, and the way that we prevent the attack and fight against the attacks of the enemy. But sometimes in our kind of Western, enlightened, rationalistic perspective and view, we actually miss some of the subtleties of the spiritual world and worldview that really was um, encapsulated in all of the biblical writings. You see, I believe Paul kind of uses this passage here in Ephesians chapter 6 as a bookend to talk about all of the realities of spiritual warfare in life. In fact, there are approximately 16 times throughout this letter that Paul is going to address or allude to spiritual warfare. Spiritual battle is real. And everything in the Christian life is ultimately connected to it. We need to guard ourselves from thinking that Satan is behind every rock and tree. We need to understand this kind of rubric or or paradigm of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes we want to attribute things to Satan, right? We're inclined to blame Satan when it's actually our flesh. Sometimes we want to blame our flesh when it's more the world's influence. Sometimes we're inclined to neglect Satan and the spiritual dynamics altogether, and that is to our detriment. But here, we are being called to see that Christ's victory is explicitly and unrivaled in its power over the demonic forces in this world, which, by the way, are legitimate, real powers and authorities. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, every other power in the universe was demoted. All of their usurped power, and by the way, that's exactly what it is. It is usurped power. They stole that power from Adam and from those who were called to represent God and his dominion and power and rulership. But I want you to see this in the context of Jesus. One of the greatest displays of this battle that's being waged in the legitimate authority that Satan and the demonic realm had over this world is seen in the the wilderness when Jesus went off into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter four. You remember the story or the, the, the account when Satan tempted him three times, every time Jesus resists and he quotes scripture as the final authority. The last time Satan tempts Jesus, listen to what he says, is again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now just to just think about what just happened there in this picture. 
Here is Satan. You've got to think about the legitimate authority he has. Satan knows who Jesus is. He knows he's the Messiah. He knows this. And he stands there and he offers as if he owns it all of the kingdoms of the world. He says, look, you can take it if you bow down and worship me. Now, here's what that tells us. Listen, Satan understood and so did Jesus that Satan had legitimate authority because of what he stole from Adam. Now, let's not make, get confused here. Satan, I love what Luther says, that the devil is still God's devil. Amen? I didn't get much response. The devil is still God's devil. Amen? I mean, he does not have sovereign authority, but he does have a usurped rulership in this world. And it's so fascinating because Jesus doesn't say, well, that's not yours to offer. You want to know why? Because Jesus knew he had to get it back one way and one way only. It had to be through the cross and the resurrection. He had to defeat the power that gave Satan this claim. He had to defeat the sin and the death that made it Satan's. And so Jesus, he responds, quoting again from Deuteronomy, says, Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You see, Jesus teaches us something incredibly important here, that as great and mighty as Satan is, he is no longer the ultimate authority. Jesus Christ holds the name that is above every name, both in this age and in the age to come. There will never, for now until eternity, be a time when any name will rival the name of Jesus Christ in power and authority and in supremacy. The idea here from Ephesians 1 verse 21 that the name above all other names, it has cultural connotations as well. You see, at this time, if you remember back to the study we did last year in the book of Acts, you might remember that Ephesus was the very center for demonic spiritual practices. This was the place where they were doing magic and sorcery. Remember, all the people got saved, and then they bring their magic books into the center of the city, and they burn them as an act of commitment to the Lord and a fleeing from this demonic realm. You see, in, in their old life, and in some of them right, that, that are still trapped in this pagan life, to call upon the name of these supernatural powers was a way of tapping into their power and their authority. They'd use the names in their incantations. They'd use their names to, to elicit their power and their presence. So again, you just need to see the contrast Paul is making that at one point, many of these people likely call upon the names of these demonic supernatural beings to access their power, but now that power pales in comparison to the power that is found in the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every other name. So how are we to be victorious over Satan? Well, let's take a lesson from Jesus Christ who shows us in action what James tells us to do in James 4, 7, to submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, we cannot resist the devil in our own strength, right? How many of you like me, tried, failed, been there, done that? How about never again? How about tapping into the greater power of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, if we first learn to daily submit ourselves to moment by moment in the face of temptation and trial to submit ourselves to God, you say, how do you do that? By submitting to his word. By knowing the word of God, by knowing what it says about God's power, by knowing what it says about a life of righteousness. You see, Jesus models this for us. In the face of temptation, he could have taken the easy way out, so to speak. Instead, what he does is he goes back to the word of God, and he believes that what God says is better by far than what Satan has to offer him. How many of us need to be reminded of that truth in the midst of temptation? When we feel the pull of our flesh and the world and the devil pulling us towards leaning into sin and enjoying sin just one more time or just for now, in that moment to go back to the word of God and to say, no, what God says is right, what God says is better, what God calls me to is gonna produce more satisfaction and more joy than any sin could ever afford to me. There is required of us an active trust and obedience to the word of God. So you need to know the word of God. You need to ingest the word of God and you need to be willing to quote and to speak the word of God into your life. 
And the devil will flee from us just like he fled from Jesus. Some of you are just sitting here going, man, I don't get this spiritual warfare stuff. Listen, come back when we hit Ephesians 6, okay? We're going to get into a lot more then. I'm just kidding. Come back before then too. But for you, you're, just, you're trying to process this, and, and honestly, we can't get into all of the details, but I just, I just want to give you two things to remember. When you think about the spiritual warfare, when you think about the supernatural realm, just know this. Listen, the devil and demons are real. Just know that. They're real. But know this secondly, that Jesus has already defeated them. There is victory already. The devil, yes, is on a mission to steal, kill, and destroy. He opposes everything good that God is doing in your life. He hates you because he hates God. Don't forget that. But we need to rally. I've been convinced of this in my own heart lately more and more. We need to rally as the people of God less around a war speech, you know what I mean by that? Less around a speech that calls us to go out and achieve victory, and instead we need to rally more around a victory announcement, right? The announcement has been given. Jesus won, right? The enemy's defeated. The cross destroyed the power of Satan. He is a crippled foe, and his end is coming when Jesus returns to fully and finally deal with him. We stand in victory. We fight from victory. By the grace of God, that victory spreads increasingly more throughout our entire life. We need to live in this victory. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We celebrate as a church family, don't we, this unrivaled dominance of God's power. And though it doesn't always seem that Jesus is victorious, right? we look around and maybe we're inclined to think, really God, are you, are you really victorious? We must learn to trust the word of God and to trust what has been revealed to us. His kingdom is advancing in a way that doesn't make sense to the world and sometimes doesn't make sense to us. But his power is not just a power to defeat an enemy. Here's the awesome truth. It is a power to strengthen his people. So finally, radical change happens when I reflect the unrivaled direction of God's power. God's power is specifically aimed, directed towards individuals, a people. You'll notice what Paul says here in verse 22. He says, and he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, his power is for us. More specifically, it is for the church of Jesus Christ. This is, by the way, the very first mention of the church in this book. We've seen already in this first chapter the cosmic significance of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, but now we see the specific focus or direction of God's redeeming work and power. Jesus is enthroned as we speak over the entire universe, but we don't always see his reign and his rule. We look around at this world and we're we're inclined to say, Jesus, it doesn't look like you're reigning. It doesn't look like you're ruling. I thought you were sitting on the throne. You see, the plan of God in this age, if you want to see the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, you know where you look? You look not to the world, you look to the church. You look to the people of God who have been vested with this power, the power of the Spirit dwelling within us individually and corporately. The world should be able to look to the church and see there is the power of God. There are people who are broken and dead and trapped in their sin and slavery to it who are now alive and free. There are people who are once living in darkness who are now living in the light of truth. Those are people who love one another like no one else, who serve one another like no one else, who live with a different purpose for a different goal than the entire world. There are people who treat people with love and justice and mercy and compassion there in the church. This passage reminds us of this beautiful metaphor of the body. One maybe that you are familiar with or maybe even overly familiar with. The New Testament talks about this church family as a body, the body of Christ. 
And so it's helpful for us to see the significance of this. You see, here Paul wants to identify Jesus as the head and us as the body. It's a reminder to us of who our authority is in this place. No man, no council, no board is the ultimate authority in this place. No person, only the person of Jesus Christ. This is his church. He is the one who is in total and complete control. He is in charge and he is the supreme authority. He is the head who controls the body. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't work like that, then there's a malfunction. Isn't it true? And it also reminds us that if he's the head, we are the body, which means there's a role for us to play, and we are thought of a certain way by God himself. You see, here Paul says we are his body, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is such a significant statement that reminds us that in the view of God, listen, when he thinks of the church and when he thinks of Jesus Christ, he sees the two as belonging completely together. You cannot think of the head without the body, right? If you do, that's really disgusting and morbid. They belong together, and it reminds us of the way God views us, of the way Jesus views us. He sees himself, and he says in one sense, I am not complete without my body. I have made them to be with me and to be a part of me. Listen to this. As John Calvin reflects on this, he says this astounding statement. He says, this is the highest honor of the church, that unless he, Jesus, is united to us, the Son reckons himself in some measure imperfect. They don't press that too far. He doesn't mean ontologically in his person. He's incomplete in any sense. He's God. He's perfect. He is fully complete. Think of it like this, like a husband or a wife whose spouse is away for a long time and, and leaves them and eventually what they, tell, what they say, I, I don't feel complete. They are, but they're not. Something's missing. And that's what Calvin means when he says this. He says, what an encouragement. You say, why does this matter? What an encouragement it is for us to hear that not until he has us as one with himself is he complete in all his parts or does he wish to be regarded as whole? This is what we saw in Ephesians chapter one, that he has saved us and made us his treasured possessions. He loves us so deeply, more than we can possibly fathom, and that becomes the foundation of our identity. We are children of God. We are his treasured possessions. We are his body, and he longs for us to be with him. And as a down payment, he has already come to live with us by the power of his Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, says it like this, there is a sense in which we as the church are his fullness, a head alone is not complete. You can trust him. He was a doctor. A head needs a body, and you cannot think of a head without a body. So the body and the head are one in this mystical sense. As such, we Christian people are part of the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bad things happen when you separate the head from the body. Paul wants us to know that that is true physically and it is true spiritually. Paul had his eyes opened to this reality here. And this, by the way, Paul had his eyes opened to, to this reality of how tightly knit together the body of Christ is in Jesus, how tightly they are seen as one. Do you remember his conversion experience? Remember as Paul, he walked on the road to Damascus and he was going to persecute Christians. Now, just keep this in mind, Paul likely had never met Jesus a day in his life. He never spoken to Jesus, and he never actually persecuted Jesus personally. He's going to persecute Christians, and all of a sudden, God, this Jesus Christ, shows up in blazing glory and begins to speak to Paul, Saul at the time. Do you remember what he says to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you see that? Jesus tells Saul, don't you get it? Whatever you do to my people, you are doing to me. Whatever you do to the church, my body, you're ultimately doing to me. Jesus sees us in him as the same in one sense. I just, this has radical implications for how you view the body of Christ, even this morning, and I trust for the rest of your life. Just think about this for a second. Think about this connection in your mind. If you talk bad about the church, you ultimately talk bad about If you take the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ lightly, guess who you're also taking lightly? 
If you lack commitment to the church of Jesus Christ, to the people of God, guess who you ultimately lack commitment to? This is massive for how we do life together. As Paul looks at this relationship, he says there, do you notice the beginning of verse 22? He says that he put all things under his feet. That is a significant statement, and any Jew would immediately recognize that Paul is referencing or referring to Psalm 8. If you can flip back to Psalm 8 just quickly. Psalm 8 is, is such a, an important psalm when it comes to understanding the Messiah. It's a, it's a messianic psalm in one sense. Um, but this statement rings loud when you understand the context and what, what Paul is communicating. I'm just going to read the, the psalm, and I'm going to highlight a few thoughts. Look at verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Here it is, listen to this. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, Psalm 8 is speaking specifically of the role of humanity in creation. At the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, when God created Adam and Eve, he did so as the climax of his creation. He created them as image bearers, uniquely so, bearing the image of God. And part of that, the, the, the dominating part of that, is to rule on behalf of God. To extend God's rule over the entire earth to exercise his rule over the entire earth. You see, when you think of the Garden of Eden, I wonder if you can recall this. The Garden of Eden had geographical boundaries. You remember that? And Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, but some of us, we, we don't quite understand the purpose. You see, they weren't just there to enjoy. They were there to work, to exercise God's rule over the garden. But part of the point of that was to begin to push back the borders of the garden so that the garden would eventually begin to cover the entire earth. You see, so that the glory of God and the rule of God could be exercised in fullness through his servant. And here, as Paul references this all things under his feet. He is looking back in one sense and reminding us of the, what God had created Adam and Eve to do and be, but also reminding us that that is where humanity fails. You see, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the last Adam and that he came to fulfill everything that Adam failed at. Adam failed in the garden, right? He failed the test in the garden. Do you realize that Jesus passed the test in the garden? Adam was subdued by the serpent. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. Adam brought cursing into the world. Jesus brought blessing into the world. Adam tarnished the image of God in humanity. Jesus renewed and restored it to humanity. Even Adam, can you see this, was a sign pointing towards Jesus Christ. The true Adam. Who would not just bring us back to Eden but expand Eden to the end of the earth and rule perfectly over it. You see, one day all the earth, every nook and cranny will be filled with the glory of God. Everything will shine forth and shout out the glory of God. Everything will be fully and completely restored 
and ruled over. But in the meantime, before the kingdom of God comes in full, listen, this is so awesome. We, the church, have been placed here as an embassy to represent our king and to reflect his coming kingdom. The power that is now here in us is the same power that will one day rule and empower the entire world to live in perfect obedience to Jesus. As Christ fills and one day will fill the entire universe with his glory and presence, so too here and now, Christ fills and empowers the church to reflect him. Listen, Jesus is over all. And he has given all. And church, I think it's fair to say that he deserves all from us. Amen? His unrivaled power is in us and manifested through us, the church. We are to be a transforming power through the risen and exalted Christ in us. We, those who have been changed by the power of Christ, are now called to bring change by the power of Christ. This victory is not and cannot be achieved by weapons. It is not achieved by marches or by the force of power or politics. It is the victory of transformed lives as through the church which Christ fills, the rule of Christ is extended with unrivaled power throughout the world. Church, this is a call for us to trust him today and to empower us to do what he wants to do in us and what he wants to do through us. So let me close by asking you, have you trusted him today? Have you come underneath his ruling power today? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, the one who rules now in the church and rules for all eternity? If not, would you today bow the knee to him? so that you, by his power, can surrender your life to him, so that you can access his power now, and you can live in his power forever. Father, we pray that you would work mightily in our hearts. God, for some today to come to know you, Lord, by your power, God, I ask for that this morning, Lord, that you would take some who are in darkness right now and bring them into the glorious light of your son, Jesus Christ. Would you open the eyes of their heart? Would you invade the darkness and hardness of their heart with the beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? And Father, for those who already know and love Jesus, Lord, would you continue to invade our hearts, to shower abroad within our hearts the light, the transforming light and power of Jesus Christ? God, we want to know you. We want to know you in increasing ways because we want to love you, Lord, in increasing ways so that, Lord, we can live for you in increasing ways. Do this, Lord. Do this for us. Increase our hunger and thirst for you. And, Father, would we find that our hearts are satisfied only by you. Father, we pray now that you would empower your people to respond in worship and in adoration and in praise. You are ruling right now. You are the God who is exalted over all, and you and you alone are deserving of our highest praise. So God, would you work in every heart and through every mouth to lift high the name of Jesus in this place. May you receive all praise, all honor, and all glory for you and you alone are worthy. It's in the precious and powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.